Take out your Bibles with me. We are in the book of Psalms. Psalm 16 is where we'll start tonight. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, please grab one from under a seat close by in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, take that one home with you after the service. I have been asked by one or two folks about next Wednesday. Are we going to be having service next Wednesday? And I, well, yeah. And, and there's a great place to watch the fireworks right out in the parking lot afterward. It'll be about perfect time. You've got time to get home even if you need to. But yes, we will be having service. The office will be closed next Wednesday, but we will be having service next Wednesday night. So, All right, Psalm 16. We're going to look at a couple more Psalms of David tonight. Psalm 16, follow along with me, beginning verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. Verse 5, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. As we read through Psalm 16, it's interesting as we're going to we look through the Psalms of David and we've been doing this and so often where David is is in the middle of a struggle in the middle of a battle his enemies and as we've talked you know uh, King Saul coming against him as he, early on and then later on even his son Absalom and it was just all of these things that just wave after wave of of the enemies that he's talking about coming but we don't see mention of that anywhere in Psalm 16 when we get to Psalm 17 it picks up again but in Psalm 16, it would appear as though David might be in a time in his life where there aren't the enemies coming against him. There aren't the, the physical battles that he's fighting in that. But notice how he begins, preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. And as I'm thinking through that today, before getting into the next verses, because there's so much in this psalm that's just, it's so rich. But so often, that word preserve, it means to protect, it means to watch over, it means to guard. We can, that, that's, that's a quick prayer to pray when we feel the attack coming, when we feel something coming from the outside. But what about in a day when we don't anticipate anything like that? What about in our normal everyday lives when we're just going about our business? Guys, we need to pray that every day. Lord, protect me. Guard me. 
guard me, guard me from, from the enemy, our very real spiritual enemy, because the Bible tells us that he is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's just roaming around. And though we might not sense anything right away coming from him, know that he's out there. Know that, that the demonic forces, the evil forces in the world, especially against us as Christians, they are lined up. But Lord, protect me also. Guard me against the, the world around me the enticements that are out there, the subtle things that are there. But I don't know about you. Sometimes one of the biggest prayers I need to pray is, Lord, protect me from me. Because I can get, get kind of lazy at times and kind of feel like, you know what? I can coast right here. Lord, protect me from ever feeling that way. And I love this as, as he starts this, oh my God, for I take refuge in you. I can pray that prayer if and only if I'm taking refuge in, in the Lord, if I'm placing my trust completely and totally in him. And that's what David is saying here at the beginning. And just a great way to start any day, any prayer as we're putting on the armor of God, the full armor of God to go out and face the day. Lord, protect me. Protect me from the enemy. Protect me from the world. Protect me from myself as we go out into this day. He says this as he continues, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good beside you. Nothing good. Nothing good in the world besides you. That If it comes from your hand, God. You know, David, Paul would say, in me dwells no good thing. In my flesh dwells no good thing. And, and the, the, this idea, though, that everything comes from God that is good and no good comes to us except from his hand. Would you turn with me? Because there's a beautiful verse in the book of James that talks about this. It's in James chapter 1. Back towards the back. James chapter 1. And if you're a note taker, there's some cool things that, that kind of don't, they, they, the, the English doesn't do it justice. So we'll look at it together because James tells us this, every good thing given, verse 17 of James chapter 1, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. It would sound like he's saying initially the same thing, just kind of repeating himself when he says every good thing given and every perfect gift, but they're two very different things. The Greek word for thing given is dosis, and that deals with the, the act of, of giving. The focus is on the giver of the gift that as it is coming. The character of God is what is highlighted there and his desire for us. That word good there, again, is a complex word. And when we use the word good, it can mean a whole lot of things. The Greek word there is very specific, agathos. It speaks of a, of a gift that is given to someone that is ideal for the recipient of the gift if it's used properly. Now, again, that kind of is an expanded expansion on the word that we would look as good, but ideal for the one receive, the receiving the gift if it's used properly. Guys, God knows exactly what you and I individually need in every situation. 
far beyond you and I what we might even think we know, and way beyond what you might think I need or what I might think you need. This past weekend at the, at the tool sale that was going on, um, I picked up a wrench that was bent, perfectly bent, and I was really impressed. And I asked, you know, I asked Van, who was sitting there, I said, who bent this wrench? I mean, I, I want to meet this guy. It's just perfectly bent. And he goes, well, you know what that's for? And I played like I did. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and he explained to me it's a wrench, you know, for mechanics would use that and, you know, be able to get into a place that, you know, a normal wrench couldn't. And I, like I said, of course, I knew that, yeah. You see... If you were going to drive by, how many of you are mechanically inclined, like a car? You just, like, you understand cars really well. Okay, well, Mike, you drive by Mike, and he's got the hood up on his, on his truck, and something's going on inside, and he's looking. He's going to be able to tell you exactly what tool he needs to fix that. If you drive by me, and my hood is up, the tool I need is a mechanic, because <laughs> I have no idea what it is that I'm doing with that. God understands exactly what we need for the situation that we're in. That's what it speaks of here, this, this good thing given. It's focused on the giver because he is the perfect one who knows exactly what we need. But it goes even beyond that. It deals with the, it's like the, the absolute best. It can't get better, the gift that he would give you in this. It's that commercial that's out there, the extra most bestest thing. <laughs> that's, that's the idea behind it. He gives the best. There is no way to improve on it. But then it goes on from there. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. That changes that, that word gift there is dorema in the Greek, and that speaks more towards the result or the gift itself. And again, it's perfect. It's absolutely perfect and complete. It's not like we got to wait for part two or, or whatever. It's, it's complete. And it, God's, God never does anything pointless. There's always a purpose behind it. Coming down, and this is, again, this is, this is awesome. And this is what David is getting at, and that's why I have us here, because that word that is used there is in coming down, it speaks of the fact that it, it's in the continual present tense in the Greek, which means it's continually coming. God is always way ahead of us, knowing what it is that we are going to need, and he is providing for that. God never stops pouring out his perfect blessings on us. That is the kind of God that we have. And there's no variation. I love that. It's not going to change because he doesn't change. So back in, back in our psalm, David says, you are my Lord, I have no good besides you. David understands that everything that is good is coming from God, and when it comes from him, it is perfect. It is exactly what he needs for what it is that he's going through. Verse three, as for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. Now again, we've talked a lot as we've studied through the first part of these Psalms where David felt alone at times, David felt abandoned, kind of felt like everybody was, was against him, coming against him in, in times. But he takes great joy in those who, like him, love the Lord. They love God. They serve God. That's what he's speaking of here, the saints who are, who are in the earth, those, those that love God, that serve God, in whom is all my delight, the family of God. And, and that's one of the 
amazing blessings about being born again is that we are the part of the family of God. That word saints in the New Testament, you and I as Christians are referred to as saints. I find it interesting that there are other Christian denominations that have different ideas about saints. In order to be a saint, you got to first be dead. <laughs> and then you have, to have, you have to have proven miracles that have taken place and all of this other kind of stuff. And I started thinking about that today. I was thinking, you know what? The Bible says that I'm dead. <laughs> the old man is dead. And I got a big miracle. I'm bo- I've been born again. That's, you know, a dead man brought to life. So, yeah, okay, so Saint, fi- Saint Fitz, right, for us as believers, as born-again believers. And he, it t- he says, I take great delight in fellowshipping with other believers. And, guys, is that, isn't that one of the huge blessings about being Christians, about being a part of the family of God, is sharing life together, doing things together? doing this Christian walk together. And the author of Hebrews tells us that and, and, and warns against thinking, you know what, I can kind of do this on my own. Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us, and notice the pronouns here, us, through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And then he says this, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Guys, we have, we have this great fellowship that we have with one another. It's a great thing. But we also have a, a duty, an obligation as Christians to minister to one another. He used, again, us and our and together all of this. But notice if in that, and I'd encourage you to read it later, he speaks of faith, hope, and love. This, this is what we share together. And guys, we have to share that together. And it's contagious, isn't it? If you're around somebody who's got great faith, they're going through a difficult trial or they're going through something and man, they're just, their faith is so strong, it's contagious. Hope. Somebody who's, man, yeah, but, but yeah, I know it's tough right now, but man, remember where we're going and this momentary light affliction is nothing compared to the glory that awaits us. You know, the assurance that we have. You're around somebody like that, it's contagious. And man, isn't love contagious? Start loving on each other and sharing that with one another. That's why it's so important. These guys, we go all, we all go out into the world. We all are going out and facing all of the challenges and the difficulties in the world that's out there, the fear, the hopelessness, those things are contagious too, right? You get a whole bunch of people that are afraid or, or uh, hopeless or all of those other types of things. That can be, and we have to be the light that's shining in the world. And he's saying, man, I take delight in hanging out with others that, that love God. And it shifts to the, the others. Verse four, the sorrow of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. He's talking about I, those I'm not going to go out and, and be a part of. I'm going to hang out with believers. I'm going to hang out with children of God instead of those that are out in the world 
because they're chasing after other gods. They're following the worldly gods, the, the money. And, you know, again, in our age, you know, they, we're not bowing down to wooden idols, but bowing down to money and sex and fame and all of these other things, thinking that that's where they're going to find joy. That's where they're going to find happiness. That's where they're going to find everything. But he tells us here, and we know this, their sorrows are multiplied chasing after those things. And it's amazing to me how so many people still buy into the lie, still will say, you know what, well, I, I hear that, but I'm going to go try it myself. I'm going to go check it out for myself. The Bible tells, and that's what I love about the word of God too, is it, it, it shows us everything. And the wisest man who ever lived, the richest man who ever lived, Ecclesiastes records it for us, he tried it all. Because he could, and he did. He, ch he chased after everything, and at the end of it all, he says this in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Everything that you chase after. He had all of the money. He tried to buy, buy everything. He had a crazy amount of wives and concubines. Said, well, sex isn't it. Money's not it. Power's not it. Not even knowledge as he tried to accumulate all of that. At the end, he said this, the conclusion. When all has been heard is this. Fear God and keep his commandments. Fear the Lord. Be in his word and do what it says. That is where joy is. That is where satisfaction is. That is where we receive everything it is that we need. Following God and doing what he says. David says, I, I don't want anything to do with what it is that they're doing. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying or what David's saying or, or as Christians what we are to do. We need to be in the world. We need to be out in it. We are just not to be of it. We can't be a part of it. We need to be. We talked about this this weekend. We need to be light in this darkness. We need to be salt and light. But as I, we touched on a little bit this past weekend, in order to be salt and light in this world, salt and light are effective because they're distinctive. They're extremely different than what it is they're doing. You don't put egg-flavored flavoring on your eggs. You put salt on your eggs because it doesn't taste like eggs. Salt and, and light, you know, we talk, you open up a, a, a door into a dark room, the light overtakes the darkness because it is distinctively different than the darkness. We can't be like the world if we're going to have an impact on the world. And again, David, his heart here, understanding, recognizing that the joy is in, in the Lord, that's where good comes. The blessing comes from being with others that recognize that and live that way. And the world is full of sorrow, chasing after all of the other things. And that's where he's saying, I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm going to follow after the Lord. And he continues, verse 5, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. David's speaking of, yes, his future, but also his present. The life that he is living, the, 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 the lines that have fallen to me, the, the, the path that God has laid out for me, the, 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 the race that is set before me, Paul uses that, that analogy. And, and Paul would tell us the secret to it is contentment. 
being content with where God has me, where God is leading me. And that is what David is saying in this, the portion of my inheritance, and, and we'll talk about the eternal inheritance that is ahead of us, but also now where, what, what falls to me now, again, trusting God, that's who I place my trust in, knowing that he knows what is best for me. He has placed me on this path, and so I will follow after him. And it's beautiful, he says. It's pleasant. Doesn't mean that everything that happens is pleasant. Obviously, we, as we've been talking about it, we'll talk about it again when we get into 17. Not, not all of the instances are pleasant, but what he's looking at again is the overall picture. And again, who God is. Verse 7, I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. <laughs> Following the counsel of God. Mention this again this weekend if you were here. God speaks to us. What an amazing, amazing thing to think that. That almighty creator God speaks to us, counsels us. The fact that, that we're here and we're holding the living word of God. And as believers, we have the Holy Spirit of God in us as our compass. And this, our map, God counseling us. And also, as the word reveals to us, as we, are, as we are in praying and walking and sensitive to the Holy Spirit, we can hear that still, small voice. This is the way, walk in it. This is the way. He's blessing the Lord, praising God for the counsel that he gives him. Now, we can't ignore the counsel and then blame God. But if we're sensitive and following after what it is that he tells us, Indeed, verse 7 continues, my mind instructs me in the night, night school. Again, the, by the renewing of our mind, the Lord leading and guiding and directing us as we're focusing on him, instructing there. Interesting. I did a little word study. I just, I, I, I pick out certain words. I can't do it on all of it. It's, it'd be awesome, but I, I did, just did it. I did it. It was good. It's good. God is awesome. Um, <laughs> indeed, my mind instructs me. That word instructs is used 40 times in the Old Testament. Only four times is it translated instructs. The other times it is correction, chastening, disciplining. Examples, Jeremiah 10.24 Correct me, O Lord, but with justice, not with your anger, or you will bring me to nothing. <laughs> Correct me. Also, Psalm 94, I believe. Blessed is the man whom you chasten, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. That word chasten there is the same word we have here as instruct. Another, in Deuteronomy 8. That word is used here, and I'm going to read it to get us a little context, but beginning in verse 1, all the commandments that I am commanding you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know that what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not, by the way, he wasn't doing that so that God could find out. He was doing that so that they would find out what was in their hearts. Verse 3, he humbled you and let you, let you be hungry and then fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, 
that he might make you understand that what does not live, that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. And here we come to the verse. Thus you, thus you are to know in your heart that your Lord, the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. And that's our word again. Disciplining, chastening, correcting, instructing. And as we follow the Lord and as we are in his word, there are going to be those times. And sometimes it's at night when we're wrestling through with things and the Lord convicts us. The Lord corrects us when we have that quiet time alone with him. Sometimes it's that, you know, 11 o'clock at night time when you can't sleep. And the Lord says, well, now that I got your attention, there's something we're going to need to work through. Because the way you handled that earlier today or the what happened, we need, we need to work through that. And there's a beautiful thing about the Lord's discipline. And I, I know I go here a lot if, you, if you've been following along with us. We end up in Hebrews 12 a lot, but it's important that we understand this because it tells us this, Hebrews 12, it speaks of the Lord, the fact that the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. And it says he even scourges every son whom he receives. But understand, when God disciplines you and I as believers, it is never out of wrath or anger because Jesus took all of that. The full wrath of God for you and I was poured out upon Jesus. It is always done for correction for you and I. And he goes on to say this later in verse 10 and 11. This is, again, where we need to, instead of turning away from the discipline, fighting it, embracing it. And this is where, again, as I see David in the psalm, as we'll get back to there in a second, embracing the correction as God does that. But he's speaking of, again, as we saw in Deuteronomy, God disciplining us just like our earthly fathers do. For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good. And listen, so that we may share his holiness. We, when we embrace the correction and the discipline that God does in us, and we repent and we take care, we share in his holiness with that. And he goes on to say, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet for those who have been trained by it, instructed by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. When we embrace what it is that God is doing, holiness, righteousness. And that's why we come back to our psalm here. Notice David can even say, indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I will bless the Lord for those things because of what God is doing in me through that. Verse 8 I have set the Lord continually before me. Guys, that is always a great thing. <laughs> God before me. That's a choice that we make. It's a choice that David makes. I will always place him before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. He's our advocate. He's our defender. Putting him before us, he's our guide. <laughs> at my right hand, he's my guard. Therefore, because he's guiding me, because he's guarding me, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol 
nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. All of these things are feeding together here. His heart is glad. He will dwell securely. And he's talking about even his future. You're not going to abandon my soul to Sheol. You're not going to just, when I'm dead, drop me off in the land of the dead and leave me there. The next part of that verse, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay, both Peter and Paul in the book of Acts refer to that as speaking of Jesus and his resurrection. I will read from Acts chapter, Acts chapter 2. That's, this is Peter's, Peter's sermon on Pentecost. He says, but God raised him up, obviously speaking of Jesus, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For as David says of him, and now he quotes the psalm we are in now, I saw the Lord always in my presence for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life, and you will, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, he continues, I am confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is here with us to this day. So he said, obviously David wasn't talking about himself. He's dead, buried, rotted a long time ago. His tomb's right over there. And so... Because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him on an oath that, that to seat one of his descendants on the throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up to which we are all witnesses, pointing towards the resurrection, pointing towards the, the fact, and David here prophesying of this fact didn't fully understand what it was that he was prophesying and looking forward to, but writes it down, and we have this. We know, as David knew, that our soul will not be abandoned to hell because of the resurrection. Jesus, suffering and dying on the cross, paid the full penalty for you and I. He poured out his blood for us to, to redeem us, to pay our sin debt. But Paul makes it very clear that without the resurrection, guys, you and I are still in our sins. As a matter of fact, he said, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, you and I deserve above everybody in the world to be pitied because we're still in our transgressions and sins. The resurrection proves that the payment made on our behalf was accepted. So we can rejoice as David rejoices here, knowing that, that our future is secure because of the resurrection. Now he pulls it back to the present. He says, you will make known to me the path of my life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. <laughs> In your presence, the fullness of joy. The only place that we can find that joy is in his presence. There's, again, the world offers all of these other things that it can't possibly deliver in his presence. In his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. And guys, his hand isn't like this. His hand is like this to us. And pleasures forever. Has anybody read the screw tape letters? 
couple of you. Great book by C.S. Lewis. It's been a few years since I read it. I'm going to dust it off after I came across a quote from it today in a commentary. It's a it's a commentary, or it's I'm sorry, it's a book about it's a fictitious book about a conversation between two demons. One is a senior level demon, and this other junior level demon. And one's name is Screwtape, and the other's name is Wormwood. And it's back and forth letters about this and how they're trying to tempt and, and all the, their, the ones that they're assigned to try to get to hell, you know. And, and so there's these letters back and forth about that. And here's this one. I just I wanted to read this because I, I just copied it right out of Speaking of this last verse. In, this, in his fictional work, The Screwtape Letter, C.S. Lewis wrote in the voice of a senior devil complaining about the unfair advantage that God has against the devils as they do their, day, their dark work. And here's the quote. He's a hedonist at heart. All those fasts and vigils and stakes and crosses, they're only a facade or only like foam on the seashore. Out at sea, out in his sea, there is pleasure and more pleasure. He makes no secret of it. As his right hand, there are pleasures forever. He's vulgar, Wormwood. He's filled, he's filled the world full of pleasures. There are things for humans to do all day long without his mind again, in the least. Sleeping, washing, eating, drinking, making love, praying, playing, working, everything has to be twisted before its use is any good to us. We fight a cruel disadvantage. Nothing is naturally on our side. <laughs> God, his desire is to bless us. In his hand are pleasures forever. The problem comes when the world or the enemy twists the beautiful thing that God gives us and makes it sinful. If we simply, if we simply follow, if we simply, as Solomon put it, fear God and do what he says, pleasures forever. Well, Psalm 17, again, I mentioned David now, again, facing, doesn't, it just says a prayer of David. It doesn't tell us if this is, if it's Saul. More than likely, this is, again, Saul coming after him in another wave to try to, to try to, to try to kill him. Could be Absalom, as we've mentioned before, because both of them were saying false things about him uh, and doing all, all these other types of things to bring him down. So he... He's praying again. It does tell us here, this is a prayer. And he says, hear a just cause, O Lord. Give heed to my cry. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. Let my judgment come forth from your presence. Let your eyes look with equity or with truth or fairness. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. As for the deeds of men, by the words of your lips, I have kept from the paths of the violent. My steps have held fast to your path. My feet have not slipped. Again, we need to understand, as we've mentioned all the way through, David, this is a, a common thing he said in several of the Psalms, David is not claiming to be sinless. What he is saying is, in this situation, I'm blameless. 
Saul believed and propagated and spread a whole bunch of false things about David. And as we talked about Absalom, the same thing. And what he's saying in this is, Lord, I'm not guilty in this of all of the things that they're doing or trying to come against me. And he's basically saying, Lord, vindicate me. Give ear to my prayer because it's not from deceitful lips. I'm not trying to deceive you in this. But listen to how, what he, how he lays this out. Let my judgment come forth from your presence, not mine. Lord, you vindicate me. You take care of it. Let your eyes look on this fairly. And notice verse 3. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you find nothing. David writes in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. If we're going to be able to say as David, you have tried my heart, you have visited me by night, you've tested me and found nothing, guys, we need to... Do Psalm 139 first, because <laughs> we can easily deceive ourselves. We can easily play this all out because we know how we want it all to end. We know how, what will make us look good, what will make us look best in the whole thing, and we can deceive ourselves. And that's why Psalm 139 is such an important prayer that we should pray regularly. Search me, O oh God. You search me. You use your light to search me. Know my anxious thoughts. What am, I, what am I scheming? What am I, what am I trying to manipulate? Lord, show that to me. See if there's any hurtful way in me. And then you lead me in the everlasting way. To go back to what we were talking about before, that instructing me in the night. He says, you visited me my night. And no doubt in those times, in, in, in certain situations, the Lord revealing to David, okay, I was wrong there. I need to take care of that. But David take, doing a whole inventory of that situation right now, in this situation here, he says, I've gone through that with you, Lord. And there's nothing there. You've, you've shown that to me. You've revealed that to me somehow. David is able to stand this in this way, and you find nothing. He's standing before God with a totally clean conscience after he's allowed the Lord to, to do that. Now, the last part of verse 3, notice, I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. Even though I'm innocent in all of this, Lord, I'm not going to transgress with my mouth. Going back to what he was saying earlier, let my judgment come forth from your presence. Lord, you deal with this. When I read that, I, my thoughts go to what Peter tells us about, about the Lord while being reviled. He did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously. And Jesus is our example. He goes on to say, Peter said, that's our example. We can easily say, well, I'm innocent, so I'm going to go out and I'm going to defend myself. And you know what? If you want to do that, God will let you. I don't recommend it. <laughs> because if we let him do it, he will be glorified and the end result will be much, much better. And that's what David is doing here. 
Lord, you do this. As for the deeds of men, by the word of your lips, you take it. I have kept from the paths of the violent. I'm not going to go there. They're trying to kill me. David, as a matter of fact, if we're speaking, he's speaking of Saul here, had the opportunity to take matters into his own hands on more than one occasion to kill Saul, but he didn't. He said, who am I to put my hands on, the, on God's anointed? God will deal with that. God will take care of that. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. Because I've followed your ways, Lord, my feet have stayed secure. Again, even going back to the verse 8 of chapter 16, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. I have called upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me, hear my speech. Wondrously show your loving kindness. I like that. Not just show your loving kindness, wondrously show it. And isn't that true about God? Isn't that how he shows his loving kindness? It's not like partially. It's not even like mostly. It's wondrously. And I I was thinking about that earlier. Isn't Isn't that just how awesome God is? Because he doesn't just pardon. He abundantly pardons, as it tells us in Isaiah 55. He doesn't just give us grace. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us he lavishes his grace on us. That's God. And again, even going back up in his right hand, pleasures forevermore. Oh, Savior, verse 7, of those who take refuge in your right hand. Again, back chapter 1, or verse 1 of chapter 16, taking refuge. For those who rise up against them, keep me as the apple of of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. The... The apple of the eye there, that speaks like keeping a close watch. It's literally the pupil of your eye. Keep me there. Close watch over me. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Protect me from the wicked who despoil me. And now he starts, and again, here's, you know, again, speaking no doubt of, of Saul or Absalom because they are my deadly enemies who surround me. They have closed their unfeeling heart. With their mouth they speak proudly. They have now surrounded us in our steps. They set their eyes to cast down us to the ground. He is like a lion that is eager to tear and a young lion lurking in hiding places. Pretty descriptive in in the description of his enemy. Arise, O Lord, confront him, bring him low. Deliver my soul from the wicked. Deliver my soul from the wicked with your sword. Again, Lord, you deal with it. Verse 14, from men with your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life and whose belly you fill with your treasure, they are satisfied with children and leave their abundance to the babes. Verse 14 and 15 of this kind of go in a little different direction than, than that. He starts focusing on who they are, what they've set themselves up. That This is, this is their only life. They're going to take everything that they can. They're going to do whatever, whatever they can take here. Notice whose portion is in this life. They're, they're not concerned about anything else in the future. They don't believe probably that there's anything in the future. So it's all about now. It's all about getting whatever I can. It's all about accumulating everything. But David's looking at that and saying, what a waste, because they're going to die and leave, it, leave, leave everything behind. But verse 15, here we go, as for me. The proper perspective he has, and, and, and as you and I have, again, because of the resurrection, 
I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. I shall behold your face in righteousness. Guys, that's ahead for us as believers. We are one day going to look Jesus face to face. John says this in 1 John chapter 1. I'm sorry, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, for such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared as what, yet as what we are. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. We will be like him. And that's such a done deal. Romans chapter 8 says that we're predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That is, and it speaks of our glorification in the past tense. Again, how can we be so certain? How can we have this hope? Again, because of the resurrection. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live in faith in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. The Bible is clear. We were crucified with Christ, but it's just as clear that we have risen with Christ and we are alive in him. And our future is absolutely certain. I will behold your face in righteousness and I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. When we take our, David writing here again without full understanding, and you and I have, we don't have anywhere near full understanding of that either. We certainly have more understanding than David did about heaven and about what is ahead. But no idea, guys, it's far, far and above beyond what we could ever imagine or think. And it will get better all the time, every day, just continue to just blow our minds and amaze us. That's what awaits us after we take our last breath here and we take our first breath there when we awake, as it says there, in his presence. I, I had heard this before and just was reminded of it today that there was this sweet old saint and been a member of a church for a long, long time. She was just this prayer warrior, loved the word of God, taught children's ministry, and just, you know, and, and when she finally passed, in her, in her will, she said, I want two things to be done to me. And she had an open casket for the, the thing. She says, I want my Bible in my left hand and a fork in my right hand. <laughs> and then she explained, because the Bible, the word of God, it's always been, it's always been there for me. It's, it's, it's you know, God's love letter to me. But in the right hand, she said, it reminds me of all of the potlucks that we've had here at the church because after, afterwards they would clear off all of the plates off of there, but they'd say, everybody pick up your fork because the dessert's about to come, the best is yet to come. And that reminder with the fork that the best is yet to come. So in, yeah, hey man, that's awesome, right? Because guys, it's still ahead for us. And we're gonna open our eyes one day there. And we're going to see him face to face. 
best is yet to come. Amen. Well, let's, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder that is continually there before us. Lord, I've just been so blessed as we look at these Psalms of David because I can relate in so many ways, and no doubt all of us can relate to the, to the emotions, to the, the situations. But Lord, as David did continually, he turned his eyes to you. He placed his trust in you. He embraced whatever it was that you brought, that he would learn from it, that he would grow in it. And he always kept on looking ahead, Lord. So do that work in us. No doubt there are those here tonight or watching online that are going through a very difficult spot right now. But I pray that they would be able to completely trust you in the middle of it, knowing that you are faithful. Lord, that we would all be able to go before you, as, as David said, and, and search us, Lord, and, and, and try our, our thoughts and, and go through that with us, Lord, and show us if there's anything hurtful in us, anything that doesn't please you. Because, Lord, we want to deal with that right now because we want to be led by you in the paths of righteousness. Have your way, Lord. Thank you again for your word. Go before us the, the rest of this week, Lord. We, we place you before us as we move forward. You are our guide. We walk along beside you as you are our guard. Have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a good rest of the week. 